of the opposition is real. You hit me, we hitting the hell back. That's it, point blank period. That's as hood as it can get. You will not hit me. Do something to my family and it's unchallenged. That's just the bottom line. But the bottom line is this, is that if you can get out there hollering, cussing, screaming, and fighting, and the people are still suffering, or you can work within the system to make the system work for you. And that's what it boils down to. When I stand out on a bus stop, like I stand up on a bus stop for summer camp, these, the trucks, they come by and it smell and I have to back up, I have to back up, back away because of the smell, it's too strong. Thirty years. Thirty years since she first saw the black smoke. Thirty years since she led the first picket line. Thirty years since she testified in the first Supreme Court case. Thirty years since she received the first threats from the KKK. For decades, she lurked as a shadow, out of sight, unable and unwilling to be reached. Only her old friend Mike Ewall knew how to find her. One thing after another, she spent a decade leading the fight and then went underground and didn't want to be seen again. So so I was protecting her identity. For many years, people would say, well, how do I reach Celine? I'm like, you can't. Sorry, you can't. <laughs> and it took some tenacious reporters more recently, in the last year, to track her down. In the spring of 2019, I was one of the first reporters who got to sit down with Zuline and ask her not only why she left, but why she would ever come back. Our group has been around since 1992. For a short time, I took a, a respite care break, okay? I ran away from this as far as I, I went to California. I wouldn't answer a phone. I wouldn't respond to emails because I felt as though I deserved to have a life. But in doing that, you realize that there are other people that deserve to have a life too. Those little children living in that house deserve to have a life. I made a decision when I came out of my respite care. If not me, who? If not now, when? Does it really matter? Absolutely. Is it important to me? Yes, it is. Do you care about the sacrifice? Not really. But is it a sacrifice? You're damn right. It ain't for the faint of heart. It ain't for those that easily scared, okay? I'd have had my house burn up, tires slashed, wind, windshields knocked out, people breaking into the office, writing KKK, all of that shit happened. People chasing me down, my brother got to move his van in between to stop people to get, all of that happens. But that's what it's expected when you're in a fight. Zeline wanted a healthy life. Many of her relatives passed away from cancer, so she underwent respiratory. Zeline returned to Chester to pick back up the fight, but a lot of things have changed since then. 
In 2005, the facility was bought by Covanta. With Zuline gone, Reverend Horace Strand decided to organize a new organization with a new strategy. Strand founded the Chester Environmental Partnership, otherwise known as the CEP, and their method was a lot different than protests and picket lines. Strand set out to bring all of the region's leaders and stakeholders together around the issue of Chester's environment. Members of the council include Chester City Hall, University of Pennsylvania, Drexel University, Crozier Hospital, and most surprisingly, the Covanta Incinerator. According to Strand, the CEP's ability to sit down with polluters themselves, tell them the residents' concerns, and monitor their emissions is uniquely empowering. Later, as a Circle uh, uh, grew and uh, began to go in another direction, I established uh, the Chester Environmental Partnership. The purpose of Chester Environmental Partnership was to bring all the leaders together in one setting and discuss the issues firsthand as to what was going on in the community and what each industry was doing and what can be done to safeguard the health and welfare of the community. And to Strand, this is the ultimate form of environmental empowerment. For the first time, they make the rules. We're one of the most environmentally monitored facilities anywhere on the East Coast. I mean, we have not had any further clustering of environmental unfriendly facilities in the past 20 years. We have been empowered. Our government leaders were a part of the environmental justice movement. They now are the decision makers. We have a working relationship with the industries. We talk to them on a daily basis. We monitor them. We use the state EFACS system to keep track of the inspections and any violations that they may have had. And uh, we challenge them to uh, do what is right. So anyone who looks into the environmental problems in Chester will very quickly come across the CEP. Nearly every local official I spoke to about air quality in Chester referred me to them. Not having any additional air pollution is a huge plus. But what was the CEP doing about the pollution that's already there? Additionally... Mike Ewall of the Energy Justice Network contests the CEP's defense of the city, claiming that the zoning laws are written to have no teeth and thus have not been widely used, if at all, to prevent facility siting. I needed to know the status of Chester's health. I decided to stop by Chester City Hall to request some health statistics, and I made an appointment with the city's Department of Health. And while they agreed to meet, the interview could not be recorded. When I asked them if I could see any numbers or health stats of Chester residents, I was met with a pause. They didn't have any. With the exception of a local hospital report detailing death rates among its patients, Chester's health department had no information to work with. While the hospital report is many pages long, it's limited in its scope and gives you no idea about how many people are currently living with said condition nor their age, sex, income, or any other critical factor. And look, the people who work in Chester's health department were wonderful, inviting, and kind, and I have no doubt they have done well for their city. This is not their fault. This is the fault of decades of Chester and Delaware County leadership not putting in the work regarding people's health. Pause. Let's flash back to episode two. In the midst of Circle's protests, someone or, or some group broke into Zuline's office. They threw chairs around, broke cabinets, sprayed KKK on the walls, etc. But here's the thing. Almost nothing was stolen. 
The only thing the mysterious culprit stole was, that's right, health surveys. From 1998 to 2020, something out there in the ether is preventing a closer look at Chester's health. These criteria, however, are outdated and ignore scientific recommendations. Dr. Marilyn Howarth explains. Well, I think it's due to a number of reasons. First of all, Pennsylvania has the lowest ratio of public health professionals to residents of any state in the country. And Delaware County, where Chester actually resides, you know, Chester's in Delaware County, they do not have a health department, a county health department. So that health office that you mentioned that you stopped in at, they are really an extremely small group of folks who are employed by the city, and they have very limited capacity given Mm. how few of them there are. So many other places in the country have the benefit of having a county health department. But if you don't have anyone whose whose job it is to actually look into those things, no one collects yeah. that information and no one, because it really does need to be collected and uh, sorted out. So if we had a county health department in Delaware County, um, they would want to know the various segments of their county and how the health differed because they would want to create activities around improving that. Even today, Delaware County itself does not have a health department. Before I left City Hall, I explained the investigation and why it was important that I track down how Chester's health has changed over time. In response, they referred me to the CEP. With nowhere else to go, I decided to ask Strand directly, is Chester's health improving? Well, Crozier Keystone Medical Center usually do a yearly report on the entire health conditions of of the county, and they include Chester in it. And... uh, they have done a good job demonstrating the differences as relates to being closer to industries and being further away from them. Obviously, Chester has a higher rate of asthma, heart conditions, uh, cancer, kidney uh, uh, disorders, and uh, our health is not stellar in any way, you know, where it's weak. And in many ways, due to the fact that we live in an environment where there's a lot of major industries. We have uh, oil companies, refineries, and so we're like, they call it cancer hour, you know. But as far as the quality of life as relates to the knowledge that there's no further clustering of unfriendly facilities, in your community, I think that's that gives us great joy, great hope to know that uh, those industries that are operating are monitored on a daily basis. So let's break down this response, because I think it outlines the precarious position that Strand and the CEP take regarding health. First, Strand immediately cites the Crozier Hospital report that City Hall showed me earlier. And again, this report gives little insight into the current health of residents. For example, the report may show you how many people died of heart disease in, say, 2016, but it doesn't mention how many people currently live with heart disease, how many are at risk, and if living in a certain area, for example, puts you at more risk. So with that being said, Strand starts by admitting Chester's gambit of health problems. While it's not enough to write substantive policy, as I just mentioned, we can all see from the death rates alone that Chester struggles with heart disease and kidney disorders. So he admits that Chester's health is weak and that weakness is related to industry. 
This argument is the foundation the CEP rests on. If there were no health problems and if they weren't man-made, there would be no need for the CEP. So the next natural thing to explain then is how the CEP is alleviating said health problems. Instead, Strand appeals to emotion, arguing that residents find great joy in the fact that their air is monitored daily. This is the awkward position the CEP straddles. They are critical of how facilities poison people, yet do nothing to curtail present emissions. There is a clear imbalance that prevents Strand from answering this question directly. And that's because, despite the CEP's proclaimed success, Chester's health situation is depreciating. So while City Hall didn't have detailed statistics, I was able to find a study done by the University of Pennsylvania that gave me some insight into Chester's health. According to a study done by the University of Pennsylvania Center of Excellence in Environmental Toxicology, 38.5% of children in Chester suffer from asthma, with 26.7% seen in adults. Additionally, if you live in Chester, you are 24% more likely to develop lung cancer when compared to rates seen in the rest of the state. Further, Chester residents are 50% more likely to die from cerebrovascular disease, which is disease of the brain, and 25% more likely to die from heart disease when compared to the rest of Delaware County. The city still maintains one of the state's highest infant mortality rates. While the state's average infant mortality rate is 6.9, Chester's is 19.3. Finally, 14.4% of children in Chester are born below the average birth weight, which is the second lowest among all PA municipalities. In 1995, President Clinton ordered the EPA to conduct a cumulative health and environmental survey of Chester, which, among many findings, found that many of the poor health conditions among Chester residents are directly related to the emissions of waste facilities. These correlations were also seen in the 2018 University of Pennsylvania study. Dr. Howarth reaffirms the tricky situation with Chester's health. Some research that's been done, some, there is a community health survey that's done with community members asking them what problems they have. And so based on, on those kinds of information and prior direct information from the health department, we are concerned that the disparities in health, the health problems that Chester residents have had been experiencing before, they still are. We haven't really seen any evidence that, that those are getting much better. But when you look at national data sources that are, are publicly available, there is something called the National Air Toxics Assessment, or NADA. And NADA provides information. They gather together several different sources of air pollution, and they assess every community within the country as to where they fall on the risk level in terms of how much risk they have mm -hmm. from air pollution. And Chester is routinely in the top one or two percent in terms of risk due to air pollution, in terms of its ability to cause cancer as well as other health effects. So even when only some of the air pollutants are gathered together by the federal government, it's clear that Chester falls at the top. So Chester's health is still in disarray with the help of these facilities. But let me be clear, Chester's health and environmental problems are by no means caused by one waste facility alone. But there isn't a better case study than the Covanta incinerator. 
the facility is by far the largest lone polluter in the city. Its sheer mass, along with its longevity, make it an effective case study for this investigation. Despite Strand's claims of daily monitoring, what you can't find a link to on the CEP's website is, well, daily monitoring. You can't find any information about current pollution or emissions for Covanta, the city's largest polluter. That is because this information does not exist. Rather, if it does, it's not readily available to the public. The Chester Environmental Partnership, known as the CEP, the Department of Environmental Protection, known as the DEP, and Covanta all claim to share monitoring data on emissions with each other. When I asked the CEP for this data, they gave me a link to a website that tracks Chester's general air quality. And while this tracker is certainly useful, it doesn't give any information about specific facilities. When I asked Covanta, they sent me a sustainability report that has numbers for a few pollutants from a single test done in 2018. Recently, on April 22nd, 2021, Covanta started posting some daily emissions data on their website. While this is a step in the right direction, they only list data for four pollutants and opacity rates, which is by no means all of their emissions. The chart shows how far below state-permitted levels their emissions are. And when I asked the DEP, they referred me to the same data that you can, with some digging, find on their website databases. And once you're there, you can actually get very good information on the specific amounts of a whole list of pollutants, but only by year. According to the DEP, there are continuous monitoring systems that track facility performance and are submitted quarterly, but I could find no such quarterly reports publicly available on the DEP website. I filled out the paperwork to have access to the continuous emissions monitoring system in hopes of finding these reports, but I never received a response to my application. So overall, my finding is this. Daily monitoring is misleading. There isn't an employee at the CEP or the DEP sitting in front of a screen every day watching a live feed of Covana's emissions. And obviously not, it would be impossible to do this for every facility in the state every single day. For as transparent as the state, city, and Covana claim this knowledge is, it's just not. With that being said, for the sake of this podcast, the state's yearly emissions data will have to do. I analyzed data reported from their facility to the PA Department of Environmental Protection. For most toxins, we were able to receive yearly reports of emissions, but that isn't the case for all pollutants. Even prominent greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide only started being reported in 2012. Nevertheless, here are the ones I have solid data on. To Covana's credit, rates of lead, Sulfur oxide, hydrochloric acid, and beryllium have all seen declines since the 90s and early 2000s. But with that being said, carbon monoxide, arsenic, cadmium, nitrous oxide, nickel, chromium, and NOx, which is a nitrogen-based pollutant, have all seen very similar or even higher rates of emission in the past few years compared to 20 years ago when Westinghouse was running things. One of the grandest increases is seen in the facility's methane emissions, steadily increasing by nearly 25 tons since 2012. Seeing as the city's main polluter has increased many of its emissions while Chester's health has gotten worse, this toxic relationship is alive and well. So, Strand knows Chester's health is weak, and presumably, he knows the incinerator has higher emissions than it did in the 90s. 
Yet on multiple occasions, the CEP has given Covanta awards for environmental justice. Strand, who once picketed the same facility when it emitted less than it does now, claims Covanta is the epitome of what it means to be a quote-unquote good neighbor. This is startling for two reasons. First, environmental racism deals with the placement of polluting facilities disproportionately close to residents of color. But the Chester incinerator has not moved and has by no means stopped burning. So families who live next to the incinerator are breathing in more toxic fumes than Zuline did more than 20 years ago. Second, Covana and other industries help fund the CEP. So whether or not these awards are functionally a quid pro quo between the CEP and Covana is not known, and I have no evidence of that. But think about it. The tight-knit relationship between the two does scream of conflict of interest. Learning all of this was incredibly confusing. Because you know, weren't Strand and Zuline activists together in Circle? Because I just spoke with Zuline and she's still pretty pissed at Covana. But Strand is quite the opposite. I called Zuline and asked her, why is there this split between you and Strand? In search for clarity, I got more confusion. And a check. Not made out to me, but to Circle. It was way back in 1994, when Circle had first started, and Zelina had just given a speech at Swarthmore afterwards during the meet and greet. She met a couple who thanked her and mentioned that they were the ones who helped Circle get a hefty check come in. Zelina was appreciative, yet also shocked and confused. Look, their grassroots group was by no means rolling in money, and they would have noticed a check come in. So she thanked the couple and reached out to Circle's financial officer, who said they had not seen any check for anywhere near that amount of money. Zuline left the event and busted through the doors of Faith Temple Church in Chester. And there, she confronted Reverend Horace Strand for embezzling from Circle. Zuline alleges that the money went to renovate his church. This information was never made public until now. What you have to understand is this happened very early on for Circle, and they were seeing success. Zuline didn't want their budding organization, which served as a model for environmental grassroots groups nationwide, to be riddled with scandal. And so they came to an agreement. Strands privately admitted to the crime, agreed to gradually pay it back, and stepped down as the head of Circle. He was excommunicated from their activism. In Zuline's last letter to Strand, after he finished the repayments, she ended with a scornful message for the reverend, saying, quote, I am asking that, taking your prior history of unchristian-like behavior, that we limit our contact to written correspondence, end quote. And Strand's excommunication was the case for a while. He was to be no part of Chester's activism. Listen yourself as he lists off his own achievements while subtly throwing shots at Zuline. I was appointed three times as a member of NEJAC to advise the secretary of the EPA. It was unprecedented uh, appointment three times, you know. I was the vice chairman of the Environmental Justice Advisory Board to the secretary of the DEP, and I'm still a member of that board right now, okay. I have environmental experience expertise throughout this country and indigenous nations in Alaska and Hawaii, okay. So there's not too many people in, in this country that have my expertise and my experience in dealing with the EJ. But the bottom line is this, is that if you can get out there hollering, cussing, screaming, and fighting, and the people are still suffering, or you can work within the system to make the system work for you. 
Now let me be clear. Me exposing this embezzlement is not to belittle what Strand has done for the city. This event reveals a fundamental rift between activists so wide that the war in Chester is no longer just about air, but about philosophy. I'll let former Circle member Mike Ewall share his side of the story. Let's go to 2005. 2005, I get a call from Reverend Strand. I'd never met this guy before. I knew of him. I knew he was involved since the very beginning with Rizulian around 1991-92. And I knew that he, within a few years, was no longer involved in the early 90s. And she had nothing good to say about him. I didn't know the full context why. Um, I didn't learn until much more recently that he actually tried to embezzle from the group, um, a, a donation that he pretended didn't come in. But when he called me up, he said he wanted me to come to this meeting. They're going to form this group. And um, he wanted me to be on the board. So I come to this meeting. The meeting is run by a state environmental agency official and a federal environmental agency official. It was held during a workday at his church. No real community members came. It was basically corporate polluter types, businessmen, government officials. Might have been another clergy person or two at that meeting or some others since then, but but very few. Um, it's mostly Reverend Strand and government and business people. So this is what became Chester Environmental Partnership. So I had expressed at one point to a reporter that this is not a legit environmental justice group. It's not a community group I've dealt with more than I can count. I've helped form many, and I've also supported many grassroots environmental justice groups around the country. I know what their, what their flavor is. You know, I know where they tend to meet, when they meet, um, who tends to come. It looks nothing like the Chester Environmental Partnership meetings at all. So Mike, the CEP wasn't a quote-unquote grassroots organization. Their meetings were held during the workday, and they weren't made up of average residents. In fact, the last time the CEP posted a public notice for one of their meetings was two years ago in October of 2019. Not only was it not community-based, but its successes were limited to what you could prevent through the state. So instead of protesting the city's waste facilities for, say, higher emissions, they award them for being in legal compliance. This is the difference in philosophy between Strand and Zulin. So while Strand is pushing for Chester residents to have as much power as they can within the current system, Zulin thinks the current system is flawed. I asked Strand up front about this ideological split. With Circle, uh, we, we really were active. We protest. We blocked trucks from going into the facilities. I mean, we, we did everything we could do to bring attention to our cause. And at some point, uh, we were finding that we were winning and the government was uh, willing to listen and to uh, put forth efforts to try to help resolve it. So there had to be a transition from activism to diplomacy. Uh, once you, you win your battle and you get people to say, you know what, you're right, what can we do to help? You got to be willing to sit down with them and demonstrate that you're not just about making noise, but you're about resolutions. But uh, there were those who felt that, you know, the protest was something that should go on indefinitely. There were some who felt that uh, the direction should be to totally eliminate these facilities altogether and shut them down and remove them from our our environment and, and our community. However, my my understanding is that 
these industries have a legal right to be here because they have been given that authority by government. The only thing we can do as citizens is to make sure that they're operating safely and efficiently and that they're not violating, you know, any of the laws that they're governed by. If your assumption is that those laws are inherently good, then Strand has a convincing position. If you're Zuline, however, and you think that the incinerator should have never been sited there in the first place, well, there's the debate. So the benefit of Strand's position is that he gets access to more information and legitimacy with the state and other important actors in the city. The downside is that the reforms he can call for are much more watered down. Zulin and Mike have the opposite problem. They can call for dramatic changes to Chester's air, but they have to fight for the attention. The question we reach is this. Are these two different activist camps incompatible? According to Mike, yes and no. As someone who was on the CEP's board, he gained access to valuable information, but had to take it outside of the CEP to actually stir effective activism. So 2007, there was a company called Coach Energy, K-O-A-C-H, Energy, which means energy, energy. Coach is energy in Hebrew. So it was an Israeli company that wanted to basically build the world's largest um, tires-to-liquids facility, essentially. And they wanted to do that in Chester, of all places. And so they came to the city, and the city handed them over to CEP. So I knew the... Um, nature of this technology i knew it was really bad for the community and so when i was still for a little bit longer the environmental chair of the environmental partnership they came to some of the cep meetings and i think reverence jam and i were using each other you know i was using the the partnership in order to gain information on something that i know i couldn't trust him to lead a fight against but to get information so we can lead that fight externally and i think he was using me as someone who actually knows how to ask questions and grill them. So, so I came up with a list of 90 questions and they actually tried to answer them all. And they gave me a response in writing to all these 90 questions. I had a lot of detailed things in there. And that information helped us understand the nature of, of what they were proposing, which was very helpful um, so we can then critique it appropriately. So I used that information and then I took that outside of CEP and we were already starting to organize the Delco Alliance for Environmental Justice, Delco being Delaware County. And this had residents from Chester, residents from the white suburban areas outside of Chester, all working together. So that got defeated within about six months' time from the organizing um, that I made sure residents in and around Chester were doing. And that only was possible because of the information that we got through Chester Environmental Partnership before I was locked out of the process. Whether these two ideological camps are compatible or not, it is Strand alone who has the reins of Chester's environmental solutions. It seems that, besides monitoring, Strand has mainly started programs that target the symptoms of pollution rather than their core. So instead of, say, trying to curb emissions, Strand's list of CEP accomplishments is surmised by things like asthma awareness programs, or school field trips to D.C., or park beautification programs— and while these are all wonderful policies, enshrining Band-Aid reforms instead of tackling the root cause of continued health problems in Chester seems to contradict the notions of empowerment Strand speaks so highly of. The CEP can create as many field trips as they want, but as long as they turn a blind eye to increased pollution, they will not be fully representing the citizens of Chester. 
When I interviewed Sherelle Williams, a mother of children with severe asthma who lives right next to Covanta, one of the main things she wanted from the incinerator, besides getting up and leaving, were subsidies and or compensation. She figured that Chester residents should at least get reductions on their electrical bills because the incinerator is profiting off generating energy at the cost of their health. Given what Strand has said about the CEP's capacity to deliberate and empower, such a reform appears right up their alley. Sherelle's concern was actually shared by many other residents, so I asked Strand about it during our interview. It not only seemed like Strand hadn't heard of this idea, but he outright said it wasn't the CEP's problem. I don't know of any organized effort to push for those specific things. I don't have a problem with any of them. If the community organize and say, we want this, we want that, the community has a right to do that. You have to organize, you have to make your position clear, and you have to uh, get support for that position, and you have to challenge the industries and challenge the government to do that. They generate electricity out there. Is there a way for us as a city to get reduced electric bills as a result of that? Maybe there is. You know, I don't know. My direction has not been to force those particular issues as it relates to what you have been told and uh, what, what some of the citizens want. My job is, has been to make sure that they're operating efficiently and safe and not harming, you know, my environment. But there may be other groups that could organize to get them to do that. I can agree that it's hard to balance all the facilities, community leaders, and programs the CEP does. But isn't that the entire point of the organization? Sure, individual citizens could organize themselves to negotiate with the incinerator, but if the CEP sits down with Covana every day for this purpose, wouldn't it be a lot easier for everyone if that conversation started there? Strand touts those connections and apparently governs Chester's health, yet this response to citizens' concerns is, quote, organize yourself. Strand claims to serve the most empowered Black community on the East Coast. But if your organization isn't responsive to citizens, it raises the question, who are you serving? And look, it's not like this idea is completely unheard of or anything. Zuline says that Circle was fighting for it back when she was working with Strand. Chester is an economically depressed community. And many years ago, we found out that they generated electricity as a part of their byproduct. And at the current time, I think that the operators of the incinerator was Westinghouse. So we found out that part of the generation of electricity, it was sold back into the electricity grid, the energy grid. And it was being sold at that time to Atlantic City. So as an everyday resident, I'm like, okay, this shit's not making sense to me. You here in our community, every homeowner in the city of Chester has to pay a yearly trash bill to have their trash picked up. So we had asked the question, you're here. Why not make a decision to give every household in Chester free electricity? Oh, we can't do that. Well, why? You here. You polluting us. So why should people in Atlantic City get the benefit of cheap electricity? Just a question.
As we covered in episode one, environmental justice is not simply about levels of pollution. It's about fairness. And if Covanta is not going to move and is going to increase emissions of many of its pollutants, citizens asking for a slice of the profit should be one of the first things on your to-do list. As Mike Ewall said, when your organization isn't actually grassroots, you lose touch with local residents. This has led Strand to make important decisions for Chester that common people just view as straight-up corruption. When word got out to the conservation community that Philly wanted to send to Chester, there was uproar. Activists like Mike organized groups of people both in Chester and Philly to storm city hall meetings and voice opposition to the proposal. I was curious about how Chester would act because, as Strand claims, they are the most empowered environmental justice community on the East Coast. So they probably have things under control, right? In 2019, both Mayor Kirkland and Reverend Strand wrote letters to the Philadelphia City Council approving waste being sent to Chester to be burned despite community backlash. Strand staunchly defends this position, arguing it's based off science. And uh, our organization, CEP, sat down with the DP, Kavanta, and the EPA, and we asked them this question. Was the waste that was being burned in those incinerators causing any additional burden to our environment? Was it where, Were they emitting any additional gases or particulates into our air that would cause us to be at risk? And the DP uh, Air Monitoring Division came back with a report that there was no negative effect on the air quality as a result of them burning these plastics. Okay? All right, so now what do we, what do we do? You know, what do we say? How do we defend ourselves as a community? We just say we don't like the idea they burn plastic? You got to deal with the facts, the data. And so that's what we do at CEP because we have the regulatory agency right there. We have the uh, scientists right there, and they're asked the hard questions, and they can read the data. They can scrutinize what we as the common citizens cannot do. Look, if the DEP released a report stating that burning half of Philly's recyclables wouldn't affect Chester, I needed to get my hands on it. I asked Strand for the report, but he couldn't find it. I reached out to the DEP, who reportedly scoured their files to find such a report, yet strangely also found nothing. Another dead end. If this report exists, if the state of Pennsylvania actually made this recommendation, the public will never know how they justified it. They will never know why burning that many more plastics in Chester was deemed safe. Just for a second, let's assume that the DEP is completely correct and scientifically sound in greenlighting this. Imagine how bad your air quality has to be that adding half of a major East Coast city's recyclables to your burn pit wouldn't make a visible difference to your pollution. I could lightly burn a Lego at one end of my house and smell the plastic from the other end. If Kilvana had enough controls to make whole tons of burned plastic unnoticeable, then please share that science with the public. Regardless of this presumed science, the decision did not bode well with Mike or Chester residents. In fact, it was all too familiar. He contradicted the entire community when people in the community packed City Hall twice and the unanimously were saying no to New York City garbage uh, five years ago. And Reverend Strand said to the media, he wouldn't say this when he was present in front of all those people in a room, but to a reporter, he supported that happening, taking 20 to 30 years of New York City trash to Chester. He also apparently, according to the Philadelphia Streets Department just recently, did a letter to the city of Philadelphia expressing support for Philadelphia's trash coming there. 
These kinds of decisions have led Chester's leadership, despite claims of empowerment, to be highly criticized by longtime residents. Zeline herself is no exception. And that's the case right now with recycling. You have people in more affluent communities, such as Chestnut Hill or Lower Marion or Rose Valley. Per capita income is very high, okay? Who think that they're doing the right thing. They're teaching their children to put this in the yellow bin, in the green bin, in the blue bin. And they think that they're doing the right thing because that's what they've been taught. Let's be good stewards of the earth. Let's make sure that we recycle and take some of the worst things out of the waste stream. But in actuality, it's all, a, it's all a lie. Philadelphia, it's all a lie. Philadelphia has made a decision that they will send their recyclables here, over 50% of them, to the Cobanta incinerator to be burned. But you're telling your community that you want to 100% recycle. So stop the fucking lie. When you know you're sending it right here. You just signed a, a request for proposals, signed with Covanta to burn over 50% of your recyclables. It's not okay with us. Meet Fran. Fran is an elderly woman who has lived in Chester for decades. She has seen many different kinds of leaders come and go from City Hall. She lives near the trash incinerator and has severe asthma. Zelina and I asked her about the Philly decision. This man right here, that's why I don't vote for him. Because he ain't doing nothing. Ain't no place for the kids. Nothing. No market. You gotta go all the way to Springfield to go shopping. No movies. No skating rink. Nothing. You go to Philly, Jeopardy, they got everything. Delaware, they got everything. We pay tax just like they do. I asked Deline and Strand the same opening question in their respective interviews. I asked them to introduce themselves and their cause. Here is Deline's response. Um, I'm just somebody who's very scared for my community in, in light of us living with the largest incinerator in the country. And we understand and we see every day the health effects of it. We deal with the smells, we deal with the trucks, we deal with the overall unsureness about what's happening to our lives every day and to our children. Now listen to Strands. I'm just a uh, citizen who lives in a community that was invaded by solid waste. I basically uh, dealt with the effects of it, the smell, the stench, the noise, and the trash. And um, as I dealt with those uh, effects, I began to learn the cause of it and uh, found out that uh, we had been invaded by the largest trash to steam plant in the nation. This episode was a deep dive into the politics of activism, and as democratic citizens, that's very important to analyze and learn from. But what's important to remember is this. 
Regardless of a stolen check, activists are not at fault for the air problems or the plight of black folk in Chester. If there was ever a villain in this story, it is the institutions that have exploited Chester for decades and the people, like myself, who fed into their scheme. Join us for our final episode, where we confront both the Covana incinerator and the state of Pennsylvania for how they've treated Chester's heir. Episode 5 will not only reveal how Chester's health has gotten worse, but it will also focus on how we can help make it better. I'm David DeMarco, and this is Chester is Rising. Writing and reporting for this podcast was done by the voice you're hearing right now. Thank you again to Shelby Row Productions for engineering the project, as well as Out of Sight Stories for supporting the investigation. Finally, a big thank you to Graham Hogue for composing the intro music.